Welcome to another edition of the Truth Factor Discussion. On today, in our study of the book of Acts, we're going to be looking at the Spirit of the Lord pouring out upon all flesh as Joel prophesied it would. And we'll talk about what that actually meant and more than likely what actually took place that day. We'll also look at the first gospel message which Peter himself preached to those on the day of Pentecost. Gentlemen, it's good to have everyone with us here today. I trust that you are all doing well. Mike, how are things going for you? We're doing fine, doing very well. Uh, Let me take a chance to thank everybody who has sent cards and emails and letters and such uh, regarding my recovery from a broken neck, but I'm, I'm way ahead of schedule and feeling much, much better. Mike, that is great to hear. We're thankful for that. Um, how about you, Brian? How are you doing today? We're doing real good. Uh, ready and ready for a study. Acts 2 is a great chapter. Sounds good. Brandon, is your day going well? So far, yes. Uh, we're suffering through the Arizona winter. Uh, today's going to be high 73. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, and last but not least, Shelton, how's it going? Great. Doing good. pretty good. Good, good. All righty, so let's go ahead and jump on back here. All right, we'd like to invite you to participate in today's study. If you um, would be willing to do that, we'd definitely like to hear your questions and your comments. You should see on the screen there the various ways in which you can participate in today's study. Now, one of the things to take notice of is if you're watching this on our Facebook page, please use the comment section area and drop a comment or a question. We'll be monitoring that. Same goes true for our YouTube page. Both our Facebook and YouTube pages are titled Truth Factor Live. That's our our social media name, both places. And also, if you happen to be one of those people who just really, really love using Twitter, our Twitter handle is Truth Factor Live. So you can send comments to us that way as well. Paul is not with us here today. He had a conflict that had developed and was unable to be here. So we'll miss him for today's study. Today's study is going to be looking at the book of Acts, the book of Acts. And so if you want to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, you can join us in today's study. We will, of course, bring the passages up on the screen. All right, Tom, we're going to jump right into the study uh, today. And what I'd like to do, if you would, sir, um, have you to read for us. Well, there we go. Um, have you to read for us Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And let me get that to the right place before you do that. Okay. All right. Tom, say say something a little bit louder so Shelton okay. will go away. There we okay. go. Okay. Well, there we go. So. <laughs> All right. Go ahead and, and start this section, Tom, and read for us, if you would, the first four verses. All right. Okay. Uh, it says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rush and mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. All righty. All right, Tom, um, I appreciate you reading that for us. 
It's often some interesting things within this uh, particular section we're going to talk about here in just a moment. Before we do, let me share with the chat room the chat question. And let's get that where everybody can see it. Thank you, Brian, for posting that there. Here is the question for the chat room today. Starting with this first section, the final choice. Well, that's Gregory's from last week. I missed the wrong button. <laughs> Do you see any significance to the imagery of divided tongues as a fire appearing to set upon each of them? especially in regards to what was about to take place. So do, do you see that there might have been a reason uh, the text says that the, the, the tongues of fire appeared over them? So something to think about there as we go ahead and ask Tom the first question I have for him. So Tom, when we stop and think about what we're looking at here within the text, from the context, who um, who all were with one accord in one place? I think this is a very important thing to establish. You know, he says that all were in one accord, one place. From the context, who who do we deduce was there? Right. Yeah. Uh, well, well, like you said, this is important. Uh, you go over to Acts chapter one, and there's a mention of 120, but then there's debate whether this is the 120 that had met from which Matthias was chosen or whether this is the 12 apostles. And of course, the significance of that is there are those today who advocate uh, spiritual gifts and uh, uh, miraculous abilities and so on. And they would all, they would argue that it was the 120 here and that the Holy Spirit falls on us today. Uh, as I look at the text, though, to me, it, it's relatively clear that this is only the 12 apostles. And, and there's actually a number of reasons why I would say that. A lot of it goes back to what we talked about in chapter one the last couple of weeks. Uh, one of them was in the early part of chapter one, we find, uh, the promise was given to the apostles to that, that they were the ones who were told to go to Jerusalem and wait. And, you know, that's in verse number two where you read about the apostles. And then in verses five through seven of chapter one, you also have the last verse of chapter two. It says, after they had cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Of course, when you bear in mind that the original text didn't have chapter and verse divisions and so on, we go from there to they were all with one accord, indicating, uh, indicating that this was talking about those previously mentioned. And you can also add to that, when we get later on into this chapter, in verse number 14, it talks about how Peter stood up with the 11. And in verse 37, it talks about Peter and the rest of the apostles that they asked, what shall we do? So I tie all those things together. And to me, this is the apostles. I think you're right with that. And as you said, as you go through the context of the chapter here, it definitely helps to identify that the those 12 were the recipients I'm spoken of. So I agree completely. Um, any other thoughts on that particular um, verse or comment? Uh, I would just echo what Tom was saying. Um, <clears throat> the chapter and verse divisions in our Bibles were a later edition, and it's really unfortunate when the chapter breaks happen right in the middle of the thought because the thought began in chapter 1 and verse 15 doesn't wrap up until verse 4 of chapter 2. And so you have this break right there 
And uh, sometimes we just, once we read that, read through that break, we just check out and forget what just happened and think it's a whole new day when really, like Tom was saying, you know, there can't be that impersonal unless it was first state as a specific. And so that day is referring back to a group of people that was previously introduced. So, yeah, I agree completely with that. Um, <clears throat> and therefore it would have be, it would be only the apostles that received this miraculous gift of the Holy spirit, as we'll talk about a little bit later. But Brendan, let me ask you another question though. Does verse, or let me ask you a question. Does verse four help us understand the specifics of what the apostles were going to be doing? I think it gives, uh, I think it does. Um, you know, if we go back to John chapter uh, 16, when we have that promise of the spirit uh, that Jesus gave the apostles, uh, starting in verse 12 of John chapter 16, says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. Um, so we have the promise that the apostles were going to be guided in all the truth, that the spirit was going to come and bring to remembrance all things. And it, to me, at least that that section of scripture right there indicates that the spirit was also going to be helping reveal things that was by Jesus authority. Um, we can go into other passages in the, in the gospels where Jesus hints at, uh, especially in Matthew 24, uh, that the spirit will give them utterance as they need in that day. Um, and so going back to verse four of chapter two, I think verse four, chapter two is just the fulfillment of those what Jesus said was going to happen uh, to the apostles, that they won't have to worry about what to say. They're going to be guided to all the truth. They're going to be the revelators, uh, or the not the revelators, but they're going to be the instruments by which the Spirit reveals. Um, and to me, it underscores their teaching authority in the early church. Okay. So. I th that's a bigger answer than what I was looking for, but it's a very good answer. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> The, the reason why I asked the question, and I want to go ahead and emphasize or kind of bring this, make this point, and, and I agree with everything you said, of course, it was good. Sometimes when people talk about the miracle that takes place here on the day of Pentecost, when it says everyone heard them in their own language, some people suggest that the miracle was on the part of the hearer, that not really on the part of the apostles. And so the Holy Spirit enabled everybody to hear the apostles in their own language. But when you look at verse 4, it clearly says that the apostles began to speak with other tongues, plural. You know, so it, it helps us to understand the rest of the passage that the miracle is on the part of the apostles speaking in other tongues, not the miracle being on the part of the hearers hearing in their own languages when it was not being spoken, if that makes sense. Hey, uh, I, the part of the reason I gave a complicated answer is I've never heard that before. Uh Oh really? Uh, does this no? <laughs> so here I am. I'm just reading through it. I'm like, of course, it's the apostles working the miracle. Who, who else would it be? <laughs> I've I've known several people that that they, it's like they they forget verse four, and when they get down to the people commenting, "Hey, we hear it all in our own languages," they take that to be the miracle. You know, it's almost as if the apostles were speaking a single language, some sort of special language that everybody understood in their own. But the miracle is clearly on each apostle. Yeah. Right. 
and so uh, file that it, away very, for something you'll hear later. Yeah, yeah it's well, very significant that it's them speaking because uh, this event is going to be mirrored later in the Book of Acts. Yeah, uh, almost verbatim. So I'll leave it there. Yeah, good point. Good point. Yeah, or Great it time. could have been both. <laughs> I don't. I'm yeah, not we'll, saying it couldn't we'll have get, been, we'll but the text is various. Uh, we'll get down to various nationalities, I assume, at some point. But. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not saying it, it positively could not have been both, but right. verse 4 helps us to understand the um, the focus of the miracle. Yeah. All right. Any addition? That's the point. Yeah, that's the that's point. Right. The apostles were definitely, the whole thing is, is they were doing something miraculous. And, and 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 it doesn't have to be a it, it doesn't have to be this unknown tongue either, you oh, know, correct. which which yeah. which which is what uh which is again what the charismatic type movement wants to teach today when they talk about speaking in tongues they talk about this this language that's not spoken by men, and yeah. they go from there with it. It, it it the word the word that's used here is a word that it, it can mean a common language. Interesting. Okay. Any other thoughts or comments on that? From the or any any other thoughts or comments on verses one through four, I should say. All right, before we move on, let's go ahead and look at the question that we posed to the chat room and um I'll share where I was going with that if that helps. Um let's see. There it is. We're going to start with Stephen James. Let me send this over. So Stephen James, in his comment, he says the following here. He says, in Genesis 11, God confused the language of the nations. In Acts 2, he brings the languages back together in a sense. And let me just remind everybody what the chat question was, just for the sake of clarity. Do you see any significance to the imagery of divided tongues as a fire appearing to be set upon each of them? especially in regards to what was about to take place. And so I think Stephen makes a very good point. One I had not thought about in regards to this particular answer. Uh, we see the Tower of Babel. There was a confounding of the languages, uh, the introduction of a multitude of languages. And now through the body of Christ, in, in one sense, um, kind of see the languages coming back together. It's an interesting, interesting thought. Um, Gregor, <coughs> oh, let me read Gregor's and then uh, we'll take some comments here. He says, to me, a non-consuming fire often signified the very presence of God. This brings me back to Moses and the burning bush, lending authority to the disciples. Okay, that's, I hadn't thought about that as well. That's a very, very good point. All right, uh, any thoughts from the chat room or from y'all guys? Those uh, comments uh, to me, I think are really good, uh, especially Stephen's comment. Um, yeah. To me, and I don't have my whiteboard to do my horrible, horrible artwork, but the Bible kind of starts out super wide with all mankind and stuff gets, you know, because of mankind's rebellion gets, I guess, muddled intentionally. God confuses the language. God starts focusing back on one family to get to one nation. And then you have this very thin section of the rest of the Bible that's just about Israel. And then on Acts 2, it winds back up again. And to James' comments, you know, I could see the reunification of language in a sense there, uh, the unity of all believers that now God's calling for all men to repent. And so uh, 
it, it seems like it fits nicely in the text. I agree. When, uh, Brian. Yeah, one, one last thought. This is kind of just an extrapolation. Um, this kind of parallels what happened in Numbers chapter 11, when God took the spirit of Moses and passed it on to the 70 elders, and they began to prophesy that day. Um, and and we, we see a, a, a fairly interesting comparison of the two. In that instance, God was manifested not as fire, but as the cloud. And we know that, for example, whenever God guided the Israelites out of Egypt, the spirit was manifested either as the cloud or the fire. And the fire lit the way and guided, and the cloud confused. So it's interesting to me that in the Old Testament, many times God's spirit is manifested as the clouds. For example, when he filled the temple, when he left the temple in Ezekiel's time, and things like that, which kind of gives the sense of an obscuring of of the things of God. Yet the fire is the revealing of the things of God. When we say things like your your word is a light to my feet, you know, uh, expressions like that. And so in another way, the fact that it's fire and not the cloud manifesting the spirit kind of suggests the idea of the of the complete revelation of God, too, that this new covenant was going to reveal all the things that the old covenant had hidden or, or were kept secret, which becomes a, a big theme in the New Testament later when the apostles talk about the, the mystery that was revealed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So kind of an extrapolation of thought there, but it is interesting. It, it might consider the, the value of the fire versus the cloud in that comparison, too. Well, Brian, I hate to say that, but that's a very good point also. If I get rid of your lower third there. Let me tell you what I had in mind by this. And, and you're, you're, you're going to say, oh, that's too simple. Cause I like what everybody else said. I almost don't want to share this with you. But when we were, we were studying through this in our Tuesday, in our Sunday morning adult Bible class. And if I, the other day it clicked, you know what? They're going to be given the gift to speak in other tongues. So what other image should appear over each of the apostles than tongues? Mm. No, really. I mean, yeah. from from an imagery standpoint, there was a huge tongue over their, each of their heads. I mean, it's in the, it was fire in the shape of a tongue, but it would be a physical representation of the miracle that they would be able to um, that they would be given by the Holy Spirit. What's What's unusual is some translations uh, use the expression "the cloven tongue." Um, I split, and I'm not. Yeah. Yeah, you know, so so it's kind of interesting that that uh, that term. Uh, I was just looking at the Greek word there. Uh, you know, the the divided up tongue. I'm just not sure what that would mean. Well, think about what's about to happen with with the gift of speaking in tongues. There's going to be many tongues, and each apostle would be able to speak in different tongues. So maybe hence the 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 cons or the reason for the split or cloven tongues. Something to think about, at least. It's a good. It's a great point. Just like, uh, just like in our language, tongue is sometimes a, another term for just the language itself. You know. Yeah. Exactly. So. In other words, different languages. Yeah. Okay. Um, any other thoughts before we move on to the next section? All righty, Mister Mike. I'm going to have you to read, sir, if you would. We're going to be reading verses 5 through 13 of Acts chapter 2. And since I'm the oldest guy that you've ever seen, I always read out of the King James. Oh, that's right. Let me, let me not, let me 
make sure I dust I it am, off. I am an oddball. I will tell you that, but I'm too old to memorize anything else, and I've worked over 50 years to get this one right. You know what? I don't have it in my list here. Wow, that's how our it's, it's that it old. It's that yeah. old. Well, let them read the New King James, and I'll go with the King James. You're, you, you go right ahead, Mike. You're good. There were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Now, when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded, because that every man heard them, the apostles, speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? How we hear we every man in our own tongue, wherein we were born, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and the dwellers in Mesopotamia, and in Judea, and Cappadocia, in Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, in Egypt, and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene, strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians. We do hear them in our tongues, the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed, and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others mocking said, These men are all full of new wine. All right, Mike, I appreciate you reading that. And for the record, I don't have an issue with the King James translation. Um, some of the language is older, obviously, but I'm not intending to to speak poorly of it. Um, and so, Mike, thank you for reading that. I appreciate that. Let me take a second, though, before we talk about this and go ahead and share with everybody the chat room or the question for today or the chat question for now. I'll get it stated right at some point. So notice here, as we give consideration, the question is going to be, how many nationalities appear to be present on the day of Pentecost? So if you want to count that up and assuming each nationality, uh, every name listed there is a nationality, it might give us an idea of how many were there that day. All right, so let me go ahead and throw the first question um, out to our panel. Mike, and I'm going to hand this one to you since you did the reading for us there. What was the main thing which caused confusion and amazement among the people? Well, if you noted verse 7, all these that spake were Galileans. And through the New Testament, we realize that Galileans were never considered to be very intelligent men nationally because their, their main claim to fame was fishermen. And the other nations around the Holy Land at that time felt themselves superior to that uh, intellectually. And so uh, they, they were amazed that these Galileans had an ability that, that uh, of speaking in tongues that was absolutely uh, phenomenal. Not to give away the answer to the chat room, but if you count the nations here, you'll notice that there's more nations than there are apostles. And so we need to understand that while there are a multiplicity of nations gathered here in Jerusalem, that doesn't mean that there were uh, 25 or 30 different languages going on here. Uh, there, there were enough foreign languages to realize that the people from Galilee here were speaking a multiplicity of languages, having not learned them. That is, they hadn't been trained in other languages, not dialects, but other languages. 
So what amazed them was that they're speaking in this language, in these various languages. Uh, we note that at verse 12. They also note, being devout men, as we read at verse 5, they also note that they're speaking the wonderful works of God. And I think that's a valued statement in that listing because this wasn't just a general assembling of Jews in the city of Jerusalem. These were devout men. They had come to worship God at this Passover uh, uh, earlier, and now Pentecost, that was a second feast commanded for them to be there. They're not just casual people. These are devout men out of all these nations. So when they hear in their own tongues these wonderful works of God, they gain their attention. However, like in many audiences, there are mockers. And the ones at verse 13 that were mocking said, well, they must be drunk. They're full of new wine. And we'll find out later that the reason that they weren't full of new wine, it's just 9 o'clock in the morning, and no self-respecting Jew would be drunk at 9 in the morning. <laughs> Which brings another question that I'll leave alone. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Mike, um, I've often you know, wondered, if you think about, if you were to visualize what's taking place, you have well, over 3,000 people easily gathered together in the temple. And well, Josephus would say upwards of 170,000. Oh, wow. Okay. So imagine that crowd of people and the apostles more than likely scattered. You know, I'm, I'm mm -hmm. going to say more than likely, we don't know, but probably scattered about. And it would be, it might be that in all the commotion, there might be someone near an apostle who doesn't hear the, doesn't understand the language he's speaking. And so maybe to mm -hmm. him, it sounds like it's some gibberish going on. But everybody else intended to hear it standing around him, you know, is of the language. And I wondered if maybe the sheer commotion and almost chaos could have been what prompted some to just assume they were full of new wine. It could have been, and, and I wouldn't dispute that. I, I find another interesting aspect of this, though, John. I don't know mm -hmm. that they had public address systems in those days. But here Unless you've you... got 12 men speaking the same message in different tongues, yeah. and we don't, I don't know if there was 12 languages or five languages divided among 12 men. I, I don't know how that worked out, but you've got 12 men speaking various languages, all the same message, and the people heard that message. Yeah. I'm, I'm going, I, 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 I'm not going to go into the physics, uh, logistics, whatever there is about that, but I will tell you that obviously knowing that they heard the wonderful works of God, the word of God brought enough attention that people quit chattering and started listening. Yeah. And I, I sure wish that was the case today. And, and we also have to real. Oh, that's true. That's a good point, Mike. We also have to realize that this wasn't something that took place in three minutes. You know, the, the event of the speaking probably was 30, 40, you know, don't tell how long they were talking before we get to the amazement part. That's, that's correct. Yeah. That's correct. The day generally would start at six in the morning. And that's why we bring the attention here in a little bit to the third hour of the day. They'd been gathered there for a while. Yeah. And yet something broke the static, something broke whatever attention they had been giving. And they're seeing now one of the greatest feats that they'd ever seen. And yet you still got these mockers in the audience wanting to mess the whole thing up. That's why I'm yeah. glad that Peter does what he does beginning at verse 14, but we're not there yet. 
That's right. <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, Mike, do you think there could have been something else that happened as well that caught everybody's attention? I'm sorry, Mike. Uh, Brian. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have Brian there. Yeah. Well, it says in verse 6, it's when the sound occurred that the multitude came together, and that's the sound of the rushing wind. Um, you know, if you think about how many people there are, uh, and, you know, it, 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 you know, I, I want to say, Mike mentioned a moment ago, 100,000. I had heard that in the city at that time, or in the area at that time, it was upwards of a million. Um, so I, mm-hmm. I may be wrong about that. But that many people to hear a sound, what kind of sound must that have been? It must have just been an extraordinarily loud sound that it drew uh, the attention of the whole city. It's a good point. It's a very good point. Well, Mike, since uh, or Brian, boy, I'm getting you. I don't know why I'm calling you the others' names this morning, Brian. While you're here, say hello because Mike's dominating this. Yeah, yeah, of course. Brian, what are your thoughts regarding verse 5 in the phrase, uh, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven? You know, Mike made a really good point to say that the, uh, that the Jewish men were called to be in Jerusalem three times a year. And uh, the first was the Passover. The second was this uh, Feast of Weeks, or in the Greek, the Pentecost, uh, that they were obligated to be there for. So it's interesting that uh, that the concept of being devout is kind of tied to the idea that these are the people that are willing to make the journey. And it wasn't an easy journey to come. Now, at this time, the Jews weren't localized to the to the land of Israel anymore. Something had happened in the last few centuries called the Diaspora, where the Jews had been scattered all over the world. Uh, we know that in the time of Nebuchadnezzar, Jews were scattered out as far as Spain. Uh, and so there were uh, Jewish people from all over the world. So when it describes them from all these nations, to be clear, we're not talking about Gentiles. We're talking about Jews who lived in other countries and who had come because they were devoted to the law of Moses. I always think it's kind of neat because if you consider the the concept of the fullness of time, what kind of comes out of that is that God had orchestrated circumstances such that for this time, people from all over the world had gathered in one place, and in that place, the gospel was being revealed. Okay. All right. I appreciate that. Um a couple comments in our own private chat have popped up. I'm going to go ahead and bring them into the discussion. I'm going to uh, throw it first to Brendan, and then Tom, I'm going, to, I'm going to pop back over to something you said here for just a moment. Go ahead, Brendan. So this goes back to our pre-show discussion. Uh, there's proselytes mentioned here, and, and they're specifically mentioned in the list of people that were in, in Jerusalem at the time. Um would would these proselytes been considered fully Gentile if they're allowed within the temple grounds? If that is, you know, if that is where they're speaking. Well, there there was the court of the Gentiles at the temple uh, where Gentiles could enter in, but I believe, if I recall correctly, Gentiles could not pass into the court of the women, which was the second court. So, um, uh, but but I would also say, you being a proselyte probably characterized you as as a Jew, uh, even if one was not, you know, born that way. Proselyte, you know, it's mentioned in Matthew 23 when Jesus says the Pharisees go to make proselytes, um, that once somebody is proselyted, they are effectively a Jew. Uh, in, in the Old Testament, we see Rahab or Ruth 
um, proselyting, for example, and that means that they became full converts to the practices of Judaism. Okay. So it, it's interesting that uh, going back to your diaspora comment, Judaism was not an evangelistic, evangelistic proselytizing religion until the diaspora. And at the diaspora, that's when we start seeing really this explosion. Um, and one commentary I was reading on this that most of these proselytes would have been from Rome because I guess the Jews in Rome were very, very effective and very aggressive, if that's the right word, on their on their evangelism. So I just want to throw that out there because it's, it's interesting because you hear different things about the status of proselytes. Uh, were they treated like Samaritans? Were they treated like Gentiles? Were they treated like Jews? And so I thought it would be a good question to talk about. You know, you know, it's interesting you said that, Brendan. It is interesting to consider Judaism as not what we would consider an evangelistic religion, so to speak. I mean, they're, you know, the the proselytes in the Old Testament. In fact, in fact, what's interesting about it is there's really no formula in the law of Moses for becoming a proselyte. There's no, um, you know, and I think that's really interesting because it's it's as though the law of Moses isn't designed to make proselytes. You could still be righteous before God as a Gentile and not necessarily have to convert to Judaism. So I think that that's, I think what you're saying, Brendan, is really interesting. And I think what's more interesting is that in the New Testament, the only uh, the only evangelical Jews, so to speak, uh, and when I say evangelical, I mean in the terms of they, the desire to convert other people, seem to be the Pharisees, according to Matthew 23, um, so, so I think what you're saying, Brendan, is really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Okay. You, you know, uh, I, I've actually heard that Jews, before somebody converts, they will two or three times try to discourage you. They will try to talk you out of it because, because you know, that they reason that Gentiles are only required to keep about seven laws. They call them, I think it's the Noahic laws or something like that, versus the 600 and something laws that are a part of the law of Moses. And, and so they try to discourage Gentiles from converting to Judaism for that reason alone. Uh, and, and of course, that's modern day. You don't have the hatred of Gentiles today, at least here. Like it was back then. I mean, I, 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 I know that there's antagonism over in the Middle East, but that's a whole nother story. So, uh, anyways, that's, uh, that's my thought on that. Uh, the one thing that I was going to mention that, uh, John was, uh, alluding to a few moments ago is when we talked about these devout men from every nation under heaven, it's very possible if individuals had to travel from long, long distances, Rome and so on, because of the amount of time that they may have been in Jerusalem now for about two months, you know, perhaps staying from the time of Pentecost or from Passover to the time of Pentecost so that they could observe both of these feasts. And if you have somebody that's doing that, obviously you have somebody that's very devout. That's just a thought. Well, what are your thoughts on that? Um, guys, I've, I've, I'm like Tom. I've often thought that. And and therefore, the the three thousand who obey the gospel in chapter four, the number is up to five thousand. I view that the majority of those individuals were travelers who did not want to go home, but they stayed there in Jerusalem, and therefore created the great need because they didn't have the funds to continue staying there. What are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, that's that seems to be the logical reason for them selling their possessions and goods, even at the end of Acts chapter two, uh, and distributing to every man as every man had need. Yeah. It's it's a good show of their fellowship, their agreement with the gospel that they've obeyed. Uh, there, it's kind of a share and share alike here. It doesn't mean that one went home uh, with the greatest quantity. They went home with what they need. It, yeah. Two people wouldn't have the needs of ten people, so they distributed as the needs were. But that's uh, it. It just makes sense, John, that in those days, that's exactly why they would have stayed, and that, therefore the distribution. But that also shows later on in the Book of Acts their continued well-being toward one another. Uh, yeah. They considered not that anything that they possessed was their own. They were very generous and kind in it. Yeah. I, I agree, Mike. That's that's what I was going to say. The same thing. It, it shows at the end of Acts chapter 2, but also later in the book of Acts, we see um, that point there. If, if travelers come, they stay. The number grows, uh, mm-hmm. and they're, they're strengthened because of it, really, as, as a group of, of Christians together. So I, I believe they... they all weren't locals that, that usually lived there because none of that would have been necessary. They would have already had all the means together to take care of that number of people. But, but with the addition there, uh, that was so great. They couldn't, the, they would have had to go to extraordinary measures to take care of everyone there. Mm-hmm. Good point. Maybe, maybe one uh, other comment is that uh, because uh, there's there's something kind of insinuated throughout the book of Acts in regards to people coming to Jerusalem. And it seems to be the case that because traveling great distances was such a difficult thing in ancient times, even devout Jews probably weren't going back every year. So in about 20, 25 years, we're, maybe even 30 years, we're going to be back in Jerusalem again with the Apostle Paul. And we're going to find this language of devout Jews coming to Jerusalem and hearing the gospel for the first time still uh, still going on. So that, that these Jews are coming, you know, and as I said, they don't come necessarily every year because of the difficulties of travel, perhaps. And so we'll see them, uh, we'll, we'll meet the Ethiopian eunuch who hears the gospel for the first time in chapter 8. Chapter 22, 23, we'll be with Paul in Jerusalem again. So this is actually going to happen several times where devout Jews who come for a feast uh, get to hear the gospel. And it's, again, I just think it's a neat idea that this is part of the design of God uh, long beforehand, how the gospel would be heard, that they would be coming back to this city to hear the gospel. Well, Brian, if I may, that brings up a question I never considered. I realized that by the time of Christ, many of the Jews had traditionalized the law where they made the law of God of none effect. But I never considered that there were some that had even neglected the righteousness of the law of Moses to go back at those three feasts every year. Uh, Christ Christ made it every year, and we find that very distinctive. But obviously there were some Jews that didn't count that as, as being righteous, and I hadn't considered that. I appreciate that thought. Yeah, of course, Jesus was from Galilee. You know, if somebody lived in Galilee or what was Israel, you could have made this trek. Matter of fact, you could even go home between Passover and Pentecost, uh, you know, uh, as far as that. But but when you've got people coming from Rome and because of the spread, all of that kind of stuff, that's where you get the big challenge about coming every year and so on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people would, uh, you know, I, in some instances, 
for lack of a better term, you know, I guess they would do the best that they could. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. In the Old Testament, there's suggestions uh, that the Passover, especially I think the time of Hezekiah, that th there was just almost no annual observation by most Jews. So, right. so that's really interesting, right. again, that that absence of devotion to this feast that they were mm -hmm. obligated to come to Jerusalem for, that they, you know, that really slacked off. And I agree, I agree with what you guys said, that it seems like the devout Jews in the region probably came every year. And Mike, what you said is really important, that Jesus came all the time, but we also make it very clear, Jesus kept the law perfectly, too. Absolutely. And what's neat about Absolutely. what you're saying is that Jesus, the, the accounts are very clear, Jesus kept every feast that he was obligated to keep under the it law. It makes it much more clear, too, Brian, that, that we understand that little word that's in the Old Testament so many times in the latter part and in the minor prophets especially, that little word remnant. That that just, you, you just come across that so much, and that's what we're looking at here. These devout men undoubtedly were a portion of that remnant itself. Yeah, that, that's a great comment, Mike. Uh, very good. Good thoughts, good thoughts. All right, well, let's go ahead and tackle the incredibly difficult chat room question. Uh, <laughs> let's see. The, the question that I presented was how many nationalities roughly? And Stephen, Stephen James uh, suggested that there were probably about 12 to 14 different languages. And uh, I think I'd, I'd heard that if you were to consider everybody that was there that day, you may be looking at over 40 different nationalities, but language-wise, like we've already talked about, would have been more, fewer in number, more than likely. All right. Any thoughts before we, we need to head on to the next section? All right, let's go ahead and continue here, and let's see who is up to read. Brian. Looks like we're going to turn the next section over to you. This will be Acts chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 14 through 21. Okay, I'll be reading from the New King James Version, Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. All right. Thank you, Mr. Brian, for reading that section there. I realize that we could we would we could probably take a whole hour just on this section, and we're not going to do that. But we'll see what we can get done with it within the next 10 minutes, and then we'll continue this chapter next week. But let's go ahead and present the question for the chat room. And that question is this. What are your thoughts on why Peter uses the phrase, come to pass in the last days, instead of come to pass afterward, as stated by Joel? 
I'll explain that. If you look up the um, Joel chapter 2, 28 through 32, you find there that Joel uses the phrase, shall come to pass afterward. Now, I thought maybe Peter was uh, quoting from the Septuagint, but the Septuagint has the same words there, come to pass afterward. So when Peter said it, he says, shall come to pass in the last day. So what are your thoughts on, on why Peter used something different um, in regards to that particular phrase? So be thinking about that. Now, what we're going to do here, guys, I want to present a possible thought regarding this particular section and the use of Joel's prophecy. There is a lot of, of ideas regarding the pouring out of the Spirit of the Lord upon all flesh. And some, some of these ideas range to, you know, full-on uh, charismatic concept that when you become a Christian, uh, the Spirit of the Lord is poured out upon you in a very miraculous way um, to, to other ideas. And Wayne had pointed out something interesting uh, some weeks back when I was preparing for our local study of Acts in regards to the way that maybe we should look at Joel's prophecy. Joel's prophecy was written during a different time period. And if you were to, to look at what he says and you look at the terminology as it is used in other prophets of that time period, of the Old Testament time period, uh, there were many times that the Lord would use the term about, I'll put my spirit on, um, my, my spirit will return to, uh, let's see, other, for instance, uh, my spirit is upon you in Isaiah 59, Isaiah 44, 3, I'll pour my, pour my spirit on all your descendants, and, and other passages. It looks like that in the other instances that he's talking about, essentially, returning what we would call fellowship back with the people. So if the people had left from the Lord, when they would finally come back, he would put his spirit upon them. Um, so I, I wonder if that's the way Peter is using that terminology, or Joel's terminology, that not so much that he's literally pouring out his spirit upon all flesh, but that he is establishing now a new covenant whereby he would be with his people and his people would be with him. What are y'all's thoughts on that? I think that, to me, that I don't see any reason why that couldn't be the case. And I'm going to go a different direction and bring this back. Um, God's big purpose from the beginning was to dwell among his people. Uh, that got ruined in the garden. And throughout the whole Old Testament uh, was teaching the people and by his people the world. God's desire to dwell among his people, but he cannot do that so long as sin exist. I mean, even the temple was a reminder of the separation that existed between the people and God. Um, you know, had all these barriers and even the high priest had a barrier that he had to cleanse himself before he can go into to even be in the presence of God once per year. Um, and so it's in the realization of the church which the sin problem is dealt with through Jesus Christ that God can dwell among his people again in the spiritual kingdom. Um, so the whole idea of pouring my, out his spirit upon all flesh as a, as a way to indicate a restored fellowship. Um, I think that matches up a lot with the overarching, uh, one of the overarching themes of the Bible that, uh, that is God dwelling among his people or being able to dwell among his people again. Um, so just my three cents on that. Okay. I appreciate that. Um, any other thoughts? Yeah, John, uh, something that comes to my mind on this, is when I see this this fulfilled prophecy, or at least Peter quoting it on the day of Pentecost here, 
I do not necessarily believe that the entirety of this prophecy was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. I think it's the beginning of the fulfillment of this prophecy. And, and, and the fact is, is Joel is appealing to this new kingdom that is going to come. And this is going to be the beginning of this new kingdom because as time goes on, that's where we're going to find men servants and main maid servants prophesying. That's where you're going to find, uh, all different types of things happening that are recorded in here. Uh, but this is the beginning of that. And so Peter is making that announcement that this is the beginning of, of, of the new covenant. This is the beginning of the church, even though that's not the wording that we so much have here. That's one of the things that I see in this particular text. Some of it was happening right then because it was a spectacular event, but the ultimate fulfillment was this period of time uh, associated with the beginning of the church. Okay. All right. Um, any other well, thoughts? let's add a third thought then, if we may. Okay. Of all the prophecies that Peter could have quoted, why Joel? Uh, the Jews, the devout Jews, even the apostles themselves had so long looked for an earthly restoration of the kingdom of Israel. Mm-hmm. Prophecy of Joel doesn't speak of that at all. It it speaks of a, a, a of a rather mystical thing with women and maid servants and all uh, men servants speaking and uh, prophesying and all these things. But to say that this is the fulfillment of the prophet Joel would have at the very least caused these devout men to think very seriously, what does these clothing tongues of fire mean? What does this rushing rushing mighty wind mean? And what is the point of these men speaking in tongues, the wonderful works of God? That being the case, they're going to pay attention to when Peter says, no, we're not drunk. We are fulfilling the prophecy that you devout people should have understood from the beginning. Okay. Good point. Good point. Um, any other thoughts on this? I think, what, right. uh, I think what you said is interesting, um, and I, I'll have to think about it some more, but I will suggest that it, it's very possible that's certainly what Joel may have meant in his conversation about this. But Peter seems to be tying the statement to the event that they had just witnessed there at verse 16 Mm -hmm. when he says Mm -hmm. this is that. So I kind of, um, you know, I I would say that the pouring out of the Spirit probably, uh, at least in part, is a reference to what they just witnessed. Um, Oh, I agree with that. So I would agree. Don't don't ignore verse 21 here, Brian. Keep on with that thought and look again at verse 31. That's what Joel's prophecy says. Yeah. Okay. All right. I think it's an interesting, it's a very interesting idea that we're looking at here. Um, there's a couple other things too, as we'll go through. And Brian, I'm not, I don't disagree with what, what you're suggesting either. Um, clearly in the, with the Lord, the spirit of the Lord being poured out on all flesh, there is definitely and clearly, um, well, let me let me pause for just a moment. You think about Zacharias for just a second. Zacharias, um, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Zacharias um, when he was administering in the temple there, for all from all evidence, this was the first time, and I think even the Jews knew this. 
This was the first time since Malachi and Zechariah that um, God had spoken to his people. We've gone this long period of time. And then we had the events surrounding Jesus and the miracles and so forth that he and the apostles were doing. Now the events taking place mark another great event. Um, and and it, it, is, it even goes beyond in some ways. Um, I don't, I'm going to say it goes beyond even what Jesus and the apostles did because um, he was leading up to his death. And now this is after his death. And we have the, the, this great kingdom being established. And Peter, Peter will reference that. So um, I think the pouring out of the Spirit upon all flesh in part is going to refer to the various miraculous events and the beginning of the preaching of the gospel. I, I would have no problem kind of balancing both of those, but only because the Lord is now instituting with his people a covenant um, where he will now once again be in fellowship with them. Maybe. All right. Um, any other thoughts on that part before we continue? Uh, just a quick thought. Um there's there's really three promises here in the prophecy of what's going to happen and uh, going yes. up building up top really all the comments have been made um go, go ahead and look forward. at that what now go, go ahead go ahead and and talk and and bring this point out because we this will be their next section here I want to talk about so okay there's these three promises here in the text there's a promise of revelation which uh, is that section there of your bond servants and your maid servants so shall dream dreams and, and and so forth there is the promise of confirmation which uh verse 19 and i will grant wonders in the sky above and the signs on the earth below blood and fire and vapor smoke and then there's the promise of salvation which mike brought up in verse 21 and all those who call upon the name of the lord shall be saved so uh, we can we can talk all day long about why peter chose this and not that and so forth but uh I think Joel is exactly what he intended to pick uh, because those three promises we're going to see play out not only here in Acts 2, but they're going to keep on playing out and being fulfilled throughout the book of Acts. Uh, because like Tom was saying, there's, there's partial fulfillment here. There's fuller fulfillment as we go on throughout the history of the book of Acts. Okay. All right. Um, I want to throw one more idea out there before we uh, pull our study to a close and we'll have to continue next week but you know brendan you mentioned in the first promise there where he talks about um your sons and your daughters will prophesy then you have young men and old men men servants and maid servants um you think about during the time period of moses the mosaical law only a handful of people could speak to the lord and speak on behalf of the Lord. You you think about the Levitical priesthood. Um, under at this time that Joel, what this event that Joel is talking about, everybody would be able to speak the word of the Lord. Everybody would be able to carry the message of the Lord. And and I wonder if 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 we were to say that Joel, from his standpoint, is talking about establishing God's fellowship with his people, then under the same figurative language, all his people will now be able to speak his word and know his word, which would line up with Jeremiah's prophecy in Jeremiah 31, where he would put his hearts, uh, his words was in their hearts and their minds, and, and no one will say to their neighbor, know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. Um, I, I wonder if we look at it in a figurative fashion, um, it would then be everybody who would be speaking the word of the Lord, those who are of his people, of course, who... Um, 
were converted to the kingdom. Just another way of looking at that. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts? All right. Anyone else in the, in, in the hangout? All right. Hope I didn't run them off with that. It's just an idea. Uh, let us real quick look at the um, chat room before we run out of time here. The question... Let's go ahead and talk, look at the question here real quick. The question we posed was, what are your thoughts on why Peter uses the phrase come to pass in the last days instead of come to pass afterward, as stated by Joel. And Stephen makes a very good point. He says it seems reasonable that we have been in the last days since at least Pentecost, since at least uh, Pentecost in the first century A.D. And I, I think that's a very good point. Um, what I, what I kind of had in mind when I was asking that question is, why did Peter use the terminology in these last days? Now, keep in mind, Peter was being inspired by the Holy Spirit. So when Peter's quoting the prophecy of Joel, he's saying, Joel wrote this. But Peter, with the Holy Spirit, tweaks it a little bit to show that, yes, it is happening now. Instead of afterwards, we are now in the days that Joel talked about. And that could be why he used the terminology in these last days. And, and Stephen, you're right. I mean, this does begin the period of the last days waiting for the Son of Man to come again and bring judgment upon the world. Um, any thoughts about that? Also, uh, Brian, you threw a comment in the chat room, and I'll bring it up here real quick. Um, talking about Hebrews chapter uh, 1, verse 2, has in these days, last days, spoken to us by his Son. Um, and that's a good point. I hadn't thought about Hebrews' use of that terminology has in these last days spoken to us. And that would line up with what Peter said very well. All right. Um, any other thoughts or comments um, on this section? We'll have to pause for now and continue this next week. Um, any particular thoughts? Well, two phrases within the text real quick is, remember, first off, he said, all flesh and then later he will use the term whoever calls. This shows us that this message is for all of mankind who would turn to the Lord. All right. Well, let's see. Tom, do you have any final thoughts or comments? No, it's it's um, it's been a good study. Like you said, there's a lot more that could be dealt with in this particular text, but I appreciated the study today. And next week we'll make Peter's application. Absolutely. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Mike, you have any thoughts or comments? Great study. I I was given some points through you gentlemen that I hadn't considered before. And so when you can help an old man learn more, you're doing very well. I appreciate it. Well, Mike, we appreciate you very much, though. Uh, Brian, any final thoughts? No final thoughts. Great study, everyone. All right. And Shelton? Any final thoughts? You're muted. There we go. <laughs> now I can talk to you. Uh, I was making sure y'all weren't hearing me cough on there. Um, <laughs> no, but I'm, I'm ready for the second half. I've got a, a couple uh, good points for the second half. I hope that'll help the study there. So I was a little more inactive the first half, but uh, I soaked up a lot of information from you guys, so I appreciate the comments. I appreciate that, Shelton. And uh, Brendan, any final thoughts? No final thoughts. Just uh, glad to be back. 
uh, on the program. <laughs> All right. Appreciate you being here with us for sure. All right. Let's see. So we're going to continue this study next Wednesday, and we're going to be picking up in Acts chapter 2. We're going to start right there with about verse 22. As Tom mentioned a while ago, uh, Peter now will make the application and um, basically present the sin that the people are guilty of and the solution for that problem. And we'll see many wonderful things happen here on this day. And so we, we hope you can join us. Um, if this is your first time and you've missed some of today's studies, don't hesitate to uh, visit our YouTube page. This is youtube.com slash truthfactorlive. Um, you can also uh, be sure to subscribe and click the, the bell there for the notification and follow us on Facebook at Truth Factor Live and, of course, our Twitter stream at Truth Factor Live. We've kind of consolidated all those into a common branding, hopefully. And if everything goes according to plan, Lord willing, we'll continue our study then at next Wednesday at 11 o'clock a.m. Central Time. 12 o'clock Eastern Time, 12 noon. 9 a.m. Pacific Time. And 10 a.m. Mountain Time. And then that will also make 6 a.m. Thursday, uh, um, South Pole, Antarctica. <laughs> right here at live. Oh, Have a wonderful week.